Father, we thank you for this time together in worship, Lord. And God, what a sweet spirit here tonight, Lord, just reflecting on your goodness, your cross, your love for us. And Lord, as we look tonight together in the book of Joshua, we pray that we would once again just glean good spiritual truth from the word, truths that we can apply into our own Christian walk today. And God, that we would just be encouraged to know that you are with us, that you love us, and that you are for us. I ask these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles with me to the book of Joshua, chapter 19. Joshua, chapter 19. I hope to track all the way through chapter 21. We'll see how far we get tonight. But um, I have my phone in my back pocket, so if it starts to vibrate and I have to check and see if the baby's on its way, maybe we'll only get through chapter 19 tonight. We'll see. But uh, I'm ready to go. You'll remember our, our setting here, our context. Joshua has brought the children of Israel into the promised land. Uh, they've basically had conquest over all the enemies of the land. All of the major strongholds and enemies of the land have been conquered. And now they are dividing up the land amongst the, uh, the 12 tribes. And then those, each of those tribes is then kind of... Uh, finishing the the conquest in that area that they've been assigned. So uh, we we reviewed last week in chapter 18 that there were still still seven tribes remaining to go in and possess their land. So much of the conquest had been won. A number of the tribes had already settled. But uh, you'll remember, and I'll have some of this for you on the overhead hopefully tonight, just kind of by way of review in Joshua chapter 18 and verse 3. Joshua said to the children of Israel, How long will you neglect to go and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you? So Joshua having to exhort these seven remaining tribes, Hey guys, get up, get in there and get that land that the Lord's given to you. And uh, in verse 6 he says, You shall therefore survey the land into seven parts. Bring the survey here to me that I may cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. Here's the land that's remaining. Go divide it up. Come back. We'll pray. Cast lots and let the Lord decide who gets what. Verse 9 and 10. So the men went. I'm still just kind of reviewing out of chapter 18. So the men went, passed through the land, and wrote the survey in a book in seven parts by cities. And they came to Joshua at the camp in Shiloh. Then Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua divided the land to the children of Israel according to their divisions. So that's kind of the setting where we are in the chapter in the book right now. The balance of chapter 18 then begins to describe how Benjamin's borders and cities were allotted. And then we move into chapter 19 and we'll see the remaining six. So Benjamin was the first of the seven to get their territory. And now chapter 19, we'll see the balance. Look with me there in verse 1 of chapter 19. The second lot came out for Simeon, for the tribe of the children of Simeon, according to their families. And their inheritance was within the inheritance of the children of Judah. So chapter 19 now begins to outline both the borders and the cities of these remaining seven tribes. Well, six tribes. Benjamin was covered in chapter 18, and now Simeon is the second Um, If you skip down uh, verses 2 through 7, we get the cities of Simeon. 
Uh, Then verse 9, it says this about Simeon. The inheritance of the children of Simeon was included in the share of the children of Judah. For the share of the children of Judah was too much for them. Therefore, the children of Simeon had their inheritance within the inheritance of that people. And we'll show that on the map here in just a minute. But uh, just summarizing now through chapter 19, verses 10 through 16. The division for the land of Zebulun, that's the third of the, of the seven remaining tribes, verses 17 through 23, the land of Issachar, the land of Asher, the land of Naphtali, and the land of Dan, all the way through verse 49 of chapter 19. We're not going to take the time to read each and every city and each and every boundary, but that gives you an idea of how the land is covered in these chapters. Now, If we can, if you could put that map up now for me. I don't know how well you can see that, but this is is probably uh, the best way to kind of work your way through these chapters rather than reading the borders and the cities, which make really no visual sense to you without a good map. Uh, The map helps you see uh, how the Lord divvied up the land. And you can see in Judah, down at the bottom there, Simeon, actually found its borders within the borders of Judah, just as we read there in chapter uh, 19, that Simeon, uh, Judah had too much territory for them to completely conquer and possess, so the Lord gave Simeon part of that land there within Judah. So that kind of sums up um, what happened and, and how it got divvied up. Pick it up with me now in verse 49, still in chapter 19. And now we come specifically to Joshua's inheritance. So now all of the 12 tribes have received their land. Joshua is now going to be given his portion within the tribe of Ephraim, which is the tribe he was from. And it tells us the details here in the the last part of chapter 19. So, verse 49. When they had made an end of dividing the land as an inheritance according to their borders... The children of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. According to the word of the Lord, they gave him the city which he asked for, Timnath-serah, in the mountains of Ephraim. And he built the city and dwelt in it. These were the inheritances which Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel divided as an inheritance by lot in Shiloh before the Lord as the door of the tabernacle at the door of the tabernacle of meeting so they made an end of dividing the country so now Joshua fittingly now he has overseen the conquest he has overseen the dividing of the land and we get a little detail here they they did this prayerfully at the door of the tabernacle casting the lots trusting God to direct and establish the boundaries and the territories and now it has come for Joshua, his, his role of kind of general and, you know, architect of dividing up the land has come to a close. And he now is able to settle in his land. And we see really an example of a really good leadership here in Joshua. He waits until the rest of the nation is settled. And then it says that they, in verse 50 there, it says, according to the word of the Lord... They gave him the city which he asked for, Timnath-serah, in the mountains of Ephraim, and he built the city and dwelt in it. It seems that the Lord now blesses Joshua with the desire of his heart. 
He has overseen all of this, but he, like Caleb, he desired a place in the mountains. Uh, and the Lord gave him the desire of his heart. He had made a request. He saw a city up in the mountain country of Ephraim. But it says that they gave it to him according to the word of the Lord. So the Lord confirmed his request through prayer, through the casting of lots. And we see Joshua now really being able to settle. A humble request, really. He didn't ask for anything Outstanding. He just wanted a place up in the mountains. He could have asked for a much more fertile area, maybe a larger area. But we see in Joshua a real example of a humble servant leader. And we see the Lord blessing him with the desire of his heart. You know, just a few thoughts that came to my heart as I was studying this passage. Just some of the leadership qualities that we see in Joshua. And Joshua, of course, is a type of Christ for us in our New Testament faith. We see God exemplifying characteristics of Jesus through this life of Joshua. Joshua really being a shepherd after God's own heart. And just some of the qualities that stood out in in my mind here, just thinking about Joshua. And I'll point them out to you here tonight. The first thing... um, that I see in Joshua as being a faithful leader, he was also a man that had been learned how to be faithful under leadership. Remember, he served under Moses' leadership for many years. He was a very faithful and loyal and devoted servant of Moses. And it seems to me that God looks for that in his leaders. If you can't learn to submit to leadership, then God cannot entrust you with leadership. Because ultimately, all leadership comes from the Lord. God is looking for those hearts that are surrendered first to His leadership. Then that qualifies you to be a leader over His people, for His sheep. And even Jesus, we see the Son, don't we, submitted to the will of the Father. Even in Christ, not my will, but thine be done. Submitting even there at the cross, even at that wrestling of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, our leader, is someone who was submitted to the leadership of God the Father in the plan of salvation, surrendering not his selfish ambition and will, but rather to the plan of God. And this is important in any kind of spiritual leadership, whether it be in the home, husbands called to lead, whether it be parents leading children, whether it be in ministry leading in any capacity, there has to be the ability, the capacity to be submitted to leadership. If you can't submit to leadership, you're not fit for leadership. A lot of people miss this. They think, oh, being a leader is, you know, I'm in charge and, and, and I, you know, my word goes. And, and I, you know, a good leader is somebody who, you know, always comes out on top. And, and uh, but that's not really the way it works in the kingdom of God. A good leader is actually the humble leader, the one that's willing to surrender to God's leadership. That now gives you the grace to be a leader in the household of the Lord. And so we see this quality in Joshua, a faithful servant under Moses, preparing him and instructing him for his role as leader. Something else that we see, I think, in the life of Joshua is a strong prayer life. All through the book of Joshua, every decision, almost every decision, with a few exceptions, a few mistakes, and we'll talk about that, but... Almost every decision you see, and the Lord said, and the Lord directed, and according to the word of the Lord. 
Joshua was a man that had a prayer life with the Lord. We saw even here at the, at the end that, that the way that the land had been divided is that it was, it was handled there at the door of the tabernacle. It was a place of prayer. Joshua was a man engaged in prayer. He was getting his marching orders from the Lord through his own prayer life and abiding in prayer. You remember Moses every morning in the tabernacle, meeting with the Lord, praying, seeking the counsel of God, staying in connection with the Lord. Jesus would tell us, I'm the vine, you are the branches abide in me apart from me you can do nothing and that abiding it speaks of a relationship it speaks of a communication between you and God and a prayer life is an important part of any leadership at least so in the kingdom of God you've got to be connected to the Lord you've got to abide in him and you've got to be praying if you're not praying and and oftentimes prayer is the first thing to go it's, it's the hardest thing to keep consistent and sustained. And then we wonder, you know, why things are crumbling around us. We, we wonder why we have no sense of vision, why we're confused, why we're not sure about decisions. And, uh, you know, and then decisions seem to be, you know, wrong. And, and why, what have we done? And then we're having to fix and patch up things. A lot of that can be avoided if we will but stay in prayer. Now, you know... I think when I, when I talk about prayer life, you know, sometimes I think this comes to mind. Well, what does that look like? Okay, so I get quiet before the Lord and I pray. I, maybe I say the Lord's Prayer to kind of help give me some structure to my prayer. I pray for two or three minutes and then it's like, okay, now what do I say? <laughs> I'm done, you know. What else is there to talk about, you know? Well, i got to tell you, prayer, like anything else, is an acquired relationship. It's an acquired art. Uh, and it's as you grow in your communication with the Lord. Sometimes you need help. Go to the Psalms. And just let the Psalms be kind of a little seedling for your prayer life. Oftentimes the expressions that we read in the Psalm, our own heart can identify, identify with. Sometimes it's just crying out for mercy and help. Sometimes it's rejoicing and giving thanks and praise. Sometimes it's asking God to remedy situation, a specific issue. Begin to pray for others. You can intercede for those in your family. You can pray for the church. You can pray for the kingdom, for the gospel, for the lost, for your workplace, for your co-workers. Begin to pray that God would give you wisdom on the job. Pray that God would give you peace in your marriage. Pray that God would help you have discernment with your children. I mean, there's just, as you, as you get, as your prayer engine gets developed and warmed up, believe me, you'll be surprised. You'll look up, oh my gosh, an hour is gone, and I feel like I've just scratched the surface. And that is something that you have to develop, okay? It's not, you know, right away the first time you pray, you can necessarily feel like you're being real fruitful in prayer. But as you give yourself to it, and as you apply your heart to it, you're going to find there's a, there's a richness in prayer. And then there's, a, there's this piece of listening to the Lord in prayer. You know, you pray over these things, and then you just kind of wait on the Lord. And let the Holy Spirit kind of speak to your heart. Let God kind of illuminate your mind in these areas. Oftentimes I find when I'm praying, I'm not sure how to pray, but until I start to pray... And then all of a sudden, it's like I have this insight on what's going on, and I can begin to pray down into detail. And I really believe it's the Holy Spirit that is 
giving me the insight even to pray. So there's a, there's a listening piece, if you will, uh, to prayer. It's not just one direction. It's also God speaking and breathing things into our heart. And I think that's what was going on in Joshua's life. He was a man of prayer, but he was also a man that needed regular direction and instruction. He was leading a nation. And he needed the Lord's insight of these decisions. And we see time and time again, as the Lord commanded, as the Lord said, as the Lord commanded, God was giving him those details through his prayer life. A strong prayer life. Something else that I think we do see in the life of Joshua is obedience. Obedience. You're going to be a good leader in God's kingdom. Uh, it's not enough just to know the Lord's will. It's not enough just to have this communicated to you in prayer. You've got to be willing to do it. You have to be willing to obey. James said, don't just be a hearer of the word, be a doer of the word. And we see in Joshua a willingness to obey God. He went out in faith and fought those battles. Can you imagine? Lord, I need a battle strategy, this first big victory that we need, this first big conquest. It's got to be, you know, we've got to start strong. Okay, I got the plan. March around the city seven times. Jericho, remember? No, no, God, that's not a good plan. I, I can't do that. The people will laugh me out of here. You know, we don't know that that went on in his heart, but it wasn't like this great military vision that God gave him. He simply said, march around the city. And then at the end of seven days, march and shout, and the walls will come tumbling down. Well, it took faith, but it also took obedience, didn't it? Okay, guys, this is the plan. This is what we're going to do. And we're going to obey God. And uh, that kind of leadership is what's needed, even in, the, in our families, even in our church. We need men and women that are willing to obey God, not persuaded or manipulated by men, not man-pleasers, but someone that's willing to obey God. And uh, even when he had to challenge and correct his brethren, we see that he did it faithfully, even in disciplining uh, some of the things that he had to do. Those were not easy things. Joshua did not have an easy task, but he did. He walked in obedience. And good leaders have to obey God. There just has to be a willingness to do what God tells you to do. Something else that I notice in Joshua as a strong leader is that he was imperfect, yet he was correctable. Imperfect, yet correctable. We do see that Joshua made a couple of errors, don't we? We notice that he didn't. Uh, he made that that uh, allegiance with the Gibeonites. They deceived him. They came dressed in the old clothes. Oh, we're from a far off land. Make covenant with us. And Joshua, rather than seeking the Lord, rather than hearing from God, he they just said, oh, looks good. What, why not? And, of course, that was a mistake. So we do see that Joshua, even as a very you know, a submitted, uh, praying, and obedient leader, he had some missteps. And this is part of the human condition, isn't it? There are no perfect leaders other than God and Jesus himself. There are no perfect leaders. Moses made mistakes. Joshua made mistakes. If you look in the life of all of God's leaders, King David made some crazy mistakes, didn't he? Uh, many of the people that the Lord used mightily in the Old and New Testament, we see they are all imperfect. But we also see that they are correctable. They can learn. They, they, don't, they don't stay hardened or stubborn in their mistake or in their sin or in their you know, determined wrong direction. 
they are able to be corrected by the Lord. And this is something that I think leaders have to acknowledge, that we are all imperfect, but we all need to be sensitive to be corrected by the Holy Spirit, to get it right. What else can leaders do? There are, you can't do it all perfectly. You can't make every decision right. You want to, you may even try to, but you won't. So what can you do? Ask the Lord to forgive you. Get up, dust your feet, dust yourself off, and go forward. Allow the Lord to correct you. Allow the Holy Spirit to train you. Allow the Holy Spirit to, you know, mature you. That's part of what I think trials are. James said, consider it all joy when you go through various trials. What's the joy in a trial? Well, you're going to learn something. God's going to use that difficult place to perfect and mature faith. And I believe that mistakes are certainly one of the trials that we go through. Have you ever made a bad decision and it ended up to be a trial? (laughs) It happens a lot, doesn't it? Well, this is where God has to be able to uh, teach you. God has to be able to bring you to a place of repentance so that you can move forward. And all leaders have got to learn that grace as well. Something else that we see, of course, in Joshua is endurance. He hung in there, didn't he? Boy, leaders, you gotta, if you're going to be a leader, whether it be in your home, in the workplace, in your family, in the church, you have got to have a certain grace of endurance, patience, long-suffering. You can't get frustrated and quit. I'll be a leader as long as everybody just follows me perfectly and everything goes well. Well, you're not going to have a long shelf life as a leader. You're going to have to learn how to hang in there and endure. Think of Joshua. Now, he went in with the original spies, right? When they first came to the promised land, God wanted to bring them in. He went in, and him and Caleb, they came back with a good report. Let's go. Well, the other ten spies caused the nation to to refuse to walk in faith. And so that generation had to pass away. Joshua had to stay out in the wilderness for 38 more years waiting for his opportunity to come into the promised land and lead the conquest. So for 38 years, he just continued to help and come alongside Moses as they shepherded that people out in the wilderness. That's a long time to wait on God's plan for your life and God's calling upon your life. That's a long time to just be patient and and to serve and to just be diligent. And not only that, but in the conquest itself, it wasn't just this snap. This was a conquest of many years. And Joshua had to patiently work with these people. We saw here earlier tonight, you know, he had to come to get to those seven tribes. Guys, listen, you know, I'm getting old and advanced in years, as the Lord has told me. We've got to get this job done. There's still a lot to do. So we see a certain enduring quality, a certain faithfulness. A certain willingness to hang in there. The book of Ephesians tells us to run with what? Endurance. The race that is set before us. You know, we can't be quitters. We've got to be willing to go the distance. Paul said, I've finished my course. I've run the race. And it wasn't an easy, it wasn't a little sprint. It was a long, enduring run. And so God has called us to that as well. And finally, the the last quality, and and there are other things that could be probably illuminated here. These are just the ones that stood out to me in reflecting on what we've been seeing in the life of Joshua. The final quality of a good leader, of course, is is he was a good example. He really was a good example. We noticed that he was very fair 
when Ephraim and Manasseh, his brethren, came to him, right, and said, hey, we need more land. Joshua could have pulled a favor for his tribe, right, for his brothers. But no, he said, you know, God's given me responsibility for the whole nation. Not just you, my brethren, even though I'm from your tribe. I've got to handle this fairly and justly before the Lord. You want more land? Go get it. Go up there and defeat those giants. Clear the forests. God will bless you. God is with you. But don't look for me to come and just kind of play a favorite for you. Really a fairness in the life of Joshua. And uh, Also, we see here that he waited until the very end, until all the land was settled. Now he takes his... Um, his his settlement kind of a certain humility again certain uh, I think an example there showing that he was more concerned about the nation than he was for himself and this is a, a very important quality in leadership there has to be that heart for the people there has to be that willingness to take care of those that God has entrusted you if you're a husband you know, God has entrusted you with your wife. The Bible says that we're to love our wives and lay our lives down for our wives, just as Christ does for the church. So there has to be this deep concern and care. Now, wives, of course, you're called to love and respect your husbands. But the leadership has this quality where you have to be willing to surrender your priorities for the benefit and blessing of those that God has entrusted to your charge. If you're parents, you know that you're called to lead your children. That's mom and dad. And you know what that takes, doesn't it? It sometimes takes setting your priorities aside for the benefit of the family. That doesn't mean spoiling them and giving them everything they think they want and need. That's not good parenting. In fact, sometimes denying them those things is what's needed, and that's harder on the parent than just giving in to the child sometimes. But again, for the betterment of the child, for the betterment of the family, for the betterment of the ministry, the church, the people that God would entrust to you, there has to be a willingness to put their interests above your own. That's what Paul said to the Philippian church. Let each one consider not only himself, but the interests of others as even more important than himself. And he said, have this attitude just as who else had that attitude? As Jesus had that attitude, who humbled himself, who became a man and obedient unto death on the cross. Jesus, of course, the ultimate leader, laying down his life for his friends, putting his church, putting us before himself and offering himself as a sacrifice. That's why we'll follow him anywhere, right? That's the kind of leader you want to get behind, a leader that you know has your best interest at heart. That's someone you can trust. That's someone you can follow. Not someone who just gets up and pounds the desk and says, you will follow me because, you know, I'm in charge here. Sometimes you have to exert leadership, but you want to be a leader that people trust and they understand that you really are sincerely interested in their well-being. This is the kind of leader that Joshua was exemplified in the example that he give, lays out here and not settling for his own territory until all the nation had been settled. So really some good things there for us to challenge our hearts in those areas of leadership that God has given to us. And I think for me also just a, um, an illuminating of what a wonderful leader we have in Jesus. 
He's all those things. Imperfection. And we see something beautiful there in Joshua modeling what would ultimately be uh, given to us in Christ. Let's move on, if we can, in chapter 20. Continue our track here through Joshua. In chapter 20, now God is going to uh, instruct again the children to start setting up the cities of refuge. This is something that he had spoken of in the law earlier. Now, of course, they're in the land. It's time to establish the cities. Look with me there in verse 1 of chapter 20. The Lord also spoke to Joshua, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Appoint for yourselves cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the slayer who kills a person accidentally or unintentionally may flee there, and there shall be, uh, and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. And when he flees to one of those cities and stands at the entrance of the gate of the city and declares his case in the hearing of the elders of that city, they shall take him into the city as one of them and give him a place that he may dwell among them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not deliver the slayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unintentionally but did not hate him beforehand. And he shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment, and until the death of the one who is high priest in those days. Then the slayer may return and come to his own city and and his own house, to the city from which he fled. Verses 7 and 8 give us the names of the cities as they're established. Jump down with me to verse 9. These were the cities appointed for all the children of Israel. And for the stranger who dwelt among them, that whoever killed a person accidentally might flee there and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stood before the congregation. So really this is now just the implementation of what instruction God had already given to Moses prior. That this is a a way to handle manslaughter in the nation what happens when somebody accidentally kills somebody else he's you know he's chopping wood and the axe head flies off the handle and strikes somebody working in in the field and it kills them now what Uh, god had already laid out even before the law of moses god had already laid out the law of capital punishment for murder intentional hateful spiteful planned premeditated murder Uh, God said uh, in Genesis 9-6, this was instruction to Noah, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For For in the image of God he made man. You see, in God's minds, life is a very um, precious thing. The sanctity of life is something that God clearly identifies throughout the scripture. Because man is made in God's image. And something of God's image is attacked when murder takes place. So God had instructed that, listen, when someone murders a man, then his blood must be required of him. And now, but God is also being, you know, discerning what happens when it's an accident. Remember now, this nation, they didn't have police force. They didn't have, you know, the, the civil authorities in place. So... 
These were just things that had to kind of take care of themselves. And so when someone killed somebody, then the avenger of blood, that could oftentimes be a family member, you killed my brother, I'm going to kill you. And that would be actually something that would be carried out in the nation, this avenging of blood, this um, eye for an eye, you know, tooth for a tooth kind of a thing. But in the case of manslaughter, God wanted to provide a place of refuge, a city that they could flee to in the case of an accidental killing. And they would go there, and then that the, the incident itself would be investigated. It says they would stand before the elders and the congregation. So we would make sure that it was, in fact, an accident. And that would have to be proven and established. And if it was, then you could stay in that city of refuge and live within that city walls and not be, you know, have to live in fear that, you know, you're going to be killed for the accidental killing that took place. These cities of refuge, there would turn out to be six that God would set up in the nation. Three would be on the west side of the Jordan River and three would be on the east side to cover both sides of the Jordan and and the entire nation. These cities also would be part of the Levitical cities. And that's what we're going to study here in just a minute, but keep that in mind. So the, this was a city where the Levites lived. These were the city where, where the Levites, of course, were instructed to teach the law. They were to be experts in the law. And so this would be a place for you to go and get kind of, if you will, legal counsel, get legal representation in these cities of refuge. <clears throat> now, There is some similar types, I guess, that we could identify, and some Bible teachers and scholars have identified that, you know, God exemplifying something of Christ, even in this city of refuge. Christ, of course, is our refuge. When we have committed sin, we run to who? We run to Christ. And we must flee to Him. This was the interesting thing. If you... If you committed manslaughter and you didn't go to the city of refuge, you were open game. If some family member came and, you know, you killed his brother in an accident or not, he could, you know, legally take your life. The only way you could be safe, you had to go to this city. And then you had to stay there. They had to hear the case, verify that it was legit. Then you stay there until the death of the high priest. You remember a high priest would serve for life. Once a high priest died, a new high priest would be appointed, and then he would serve out his life. So that became kind of the calendar for the cities of refuge. That gave you opportunity, at least hope, that you would be restored back someday to your family. But until then, you would just live in this city of refuge. If you had a really old high priest, you were in luck. <laughs> you could get back soon. If the high priest was a young man, oh boy, I'm going to be here a long time. So that was just the way the Lord uh, orchestrated that, that legal system. But in the same way, we, we must flee to Christ. You know, God so loved the world, He gave His Son that what? Whosoever would believe. You've got to receive, you've got to come to your city of refuge. If you reject Christ, if you reject the refuge that God has offered you, you're still vulnerable to the effect and guilt of your sin. Now we have to find our refuge in Christ So there is some similarity, but there's also some real contrasts here, too. The types don't always carry out perfectly. For example, when we come to Christ, there's no trial. We already know we're guilty. (laughs) We come confessing guilt. We don't come looking to be defended. 
We come and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. We confess our guilt, and He's faithful and just to forgive us. And of course, our restoration is instant. We don't have to wait for the death of a high priest to be restored. Our restoration is instant because we have, our high priest is Jesus Himself forever, once and for all. We're not waiting for Him to die again. He is high priest for all. Our restoration is instant and permanent because our high priest never dies. So there are some similarities, but also clearly some contrasts. But this is God now setting these things in place for the nation. Chapter 21. So 20 is the cities of refuge. 21 we'll look at here tonight, and we'll close in 21. Now we get into the cities of the Levites. Now, you remember the Levites, one of the tribes of Israel. They were not given their own portion of land. In fact, God was to be their portion. These were the ones that, from which the priesthood would serve. The Levites are the ones that would take care of the tabernacle and the, and the ministry of the priesthood. The Levites were also to be the ones that were knowledgeable in the law, in the word of God. They were to be the instructors of God's word to the nation. If you had a question concerning God's word, concerning the law, you were to come and and allow the Levitical tribe to give insight and give instruction. So God did not set them into their own land, but rather, as we'll see, He scatters them throughout the land. Pick it up with me there in verse 1. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came near to Eleazar the priest, to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the heads of the fathers' of houses of the tribes of the children of Israel. And they spoke to them at Shiloh, in the land of Canaan, saying, The Lord commanded through Moses to give us cities to dwell in with their common lands for our livestock. So the children of Israel gave to the Levites from their inheritance at the commandment of the Lord these cities and their common lands. And the rest of the chapter identifies those cities. Verses 4 through 40, we get a complete listing of those cities. Pick it up with me if you would. Jump all the way to verse 41. And kind of the summary then of these cities. All the cities of the Levites within the possession of the children of Israel were 48 cities with their common lands. Every one of these cities had its common land surrounding it. Thus were all these cities. So 48 total cities would be scattered through the 12 tribes. And with each city would be given a certain common land, a pasturing land around the city. So this gave the Levites the opportunity not to just dwell in the city, but to also to support themselves. They had land around that city for pasturing, for raising flock, so that they would be self-sufficient within the land. So there is this connection between the Levites and all of the tribes. They would all have to set aside certain cities for them. They would have to give of their possessions to the Levites... They would have to host Levite cities within their land. And uh, tradition tells us, the Bible doesn't identify this, but there is church tradition that, that says that you, you were never more than about 10 miles away from a Levitical city. So God basically salt and peppered the land with the cities of the Levites. So there was always uh, close access to his word, close access to instruction concerning the word. 
and God purposefully putting them out into this place and and also giving them provision to sustain themselves. Of course, the, the, the priesthood would be raised and developed through the Levitical uh, priests. So there was this provision for the Levites and a blessing for them, but it was also to be a blessing and provision for the nation. They were to teach the word to the people. They were to keep the ways of the Lord ever before the people. You were never to be too far away from a Levitical city. And when you went out and did your field, and when you out and conducted your business, you would often pass by either Levitical pasture land or one of their cities. So God keeping a Levitical uh, presence before their eyes on a regular basis. You knew why they were there. They were there because God had given them that place. They were there to be teachers of the Word of God. They were there to keep the nation in the Word of God. And, you know, I think that today God has established the local church as something of a, of a similar um, ministry into the life of His people. There is this local gathering of congregation. Now, it's not quite as, you know, uh, formally divided up, but rather it happens informally, but by the direction and leading of the Holy Spirit. We find that God is continuing to do this in the life of His people today. He establishes churches. And He brings people together for a place of you know, studying the Word together. What does is, what is the model in the book of Acts give us? Acts 2.42, right? They devoted themselves to the Apostles' doctrine, the study of the Word, to fellowship, right? Gathering together, developing friendship, relationship, and breaking of bread. That included, of course, communion, but I think also a part of our worship life together, and prayer. That it would be a place of prayer. Worship, praying for one another, uh, lifting one another up in prayer. So God... God has designed us to have fellowship. Even in the Old Testament, God had set up the nation to be connected to one another, to be interdependent upon one another, and to keep fellowship and the, and the presence of His Word at the forefront of their heart and thinking. You know, I'm going to put this up on the overhead for you, Ephesians chapter 4. It's a passage that we often look at, but I think it helps us just see what God, part of what God's plan is for us as his people today. Ephesians 4 and verse 11, And he himself, this is speaking of Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. You know, just in in the same way that he gave the cities of the Levites and the Levitical tribe, he in the church has given ministry gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Verse 12, For the equipping of the saints. That's you and I. That's everyone in the, in the body of Christ. For the work of ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of the faith. So there's to be this sense of unity. And the knowledge of the Son of God. We're supposed to be growing in our knowledge to a perfect man. We're supposed to be getting stronger as a body. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we might become Christ together. Verse 14. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. So part of our gathering together as a people, 
Part of what God has done through pastoring and teaching and shepherding and fellowship is to, for protection. To grow us up, that we not be children, confused, tossed to and fro, verse 15, but rather speaking the truth in love. We may grow up in all things and to Him who is the head, Christ, from which the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. A long passage. I wanted to take the time to read it all through because it's all kind of one thought. This idea that God has established the local church as a place for maturing, learning, studying together, unity, prayer, encouraging one another. That we would never be too far from fellowship. In the same way that the children of Israel were never too distant from a Levitical city, we should never be too far from fellowship. Now, you know, we have a lot of other resources. We have radio, wonderful Bible teaching on the radio. We have wonderful, you know, there are, I should say, some wonderful Bible teachers on TV, some crazies on there too, but um, there's a lot of resources. You know, if, you could almost imagine that, you know, I, I, could, I could never step foot in a church and still get a lot of good Bible teaching and a lot of good practical, you know, instruction for my Christian life. But that's not really the way God has designed it. You know, God has designed this relationship, this, you know, body mentality. It's not just what you can pick up and glean for yourself, but as a member of the body, as we've read here, by what every joint supplies, it's also about what you can offer. And you can't offer that, you know, just listening to the radio in your car. You can't, really, you can't really function in any role just by, you know, hearing good Bible teaching on the Internet. You've got to come and connect somewhere and add something to the process if you're going to be a, a functioning part of the body. You've got to be connected. We need to be connected to one another in a local fellowship. And, you know, that's, that's the hard part, isn't it? Gosh, I could be such a great Christian if I didn't have to come to church, you know, and deal with people, right? But that's, this is part of what God has for us. And there's a health, there's a strength, there's a maturing, there's a growing up, there's a protection. These things come now. There's drama, there's problems, there's issues, there's hurt feelings, there's mistakes, there's selfishness, there's everything that you can imagine, just as there was in the nation of Israel. Because we're still, you know, imperfect. We're still in process, aren't we? We're still being transformed into the glory of into, into the image of Christ from glory to glory. And we're not there yet. So we get to come and learn patience with one another. We get to come and learn long-suffering. And learn what it is to be loving even in difficult circumstances. But this is what God, I believe, has in mind. I think this is why God is raised up and gifted. It says Jesus himself has given these ministry gifts, pastors and teachers, to equip. Equip the saints for the work of ministry, And I do want to caution you, you know, it doesn't take very long to be out of fellowship, to begin to fade spiritually. And sometimes it's almost unperceived to the one that's kind of fading. Almost you don't even notice it. But I want to tell you, it doesn't take very long. You know, you get out of fellowship for just a few weeks. And you, you, if, you if you're honest and you really kind of 
keeping tabs on your spiritual life, you will notice that, you know, the fire is dimming. You know, I need to be back until I notice that for myself. Even when we have opportunity to get away and enjoy some leisure, some vacation, which I think is healthy and good for family and for couples, and I recommend it. But I also know that, boy, there is a, when I get back into fellowship and just coming back in and sitting in the worship service, it's like, whew, man, I needed that. I just needed that spiritual life that comes to me when I am connected to the body. And we're, I think God has wired us that way. And it makes a huge difference even in our regular walk of faith. And then I think about just um, the way the body can help and minister to one another. You know, we're going to have our memorial service this Saturday for our dear brother who passed, John Garcia. And just meeting with his wife, Judy, this week, preparing some of the details. It was such a blessing to my heart for her to say to me, I just can't tell you how the church family has just come around us and just strengthened me and supported me, and the people have just been wonderful. And that, for a pastor, that there's just nothing, there's nothing better you know, that I could possibly hear. But to know that the church is acting like the church, you know, uh, that there's this love. And, and that's when you need it, isn't it? When that crisis hits, when, that, when, that one, when one member is hurting and, and, and ailing, there's the people there, you know, to, to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice. So there's something very important about our church family, about fellowship. And I think it's something beautiful when we have opportunity to walk in unity. Finish it up here with me. We're back in Joshua. I want to finish it up. Chapter 21. Look with me in verse 43 to 45. Kind of the capstone for all of this dividing up of the land. So the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which he had sworn to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and dwelt in it. The Lord gave them rest all around according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. Well, that's a great finish to uh, what God has brought this people through for a good number of years. And uh, he gave them all the land that he had promised. Now we know that they were not faithful in you know, possessing all of it, but God was faithful in providing all of it. He delivered all of their enemies. And I love the way that reads, that last verse, that you know, um, not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel, all came to pass. I just blessed my heart, just kind of finishing this, this section of the dividing of the land, that God, you know, He doesn't hold back any good thing. God is good, and He wants to bless with goodness into our lives. And it just brought some verses to, to, to memory, and I'll have them for you. Just reflect on these. We'll close here tonight with just a few encouraging verses. The psalmist in Psalm 34 and verse 8. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in Him. O oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. There is no want to those who fear Him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. 
Psalm 84, verse 10, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will He withhold from those who walk uprightly. The psalmist knew the goodness of the Lord and that God would not hold back anything good from those that loved Him, from those that had turned their hearts to Him. Finally, Romans eight thirty one. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? God is good. His promises are sure and true. He has not held back any good thing from us, to those that know Him, to those whose hearts are toward Him. You will not be disappointed in putting your trust in the Lord. You will not be disappointed for following Him. And the longer you walk with Him and the the more diligently you pursue Him, the more this truth will become profound in your heart. You begin to realize He loves me. He is good. He's not holding back any good thing. He wants to bless. He wants to pour out His love. He didn't even hold back His Son, Jesus. Even when I was lost in my sin, even when I was living in rebellion, He could have held back His Son legitimately. Why die for this group? Why why send a perfect Savior for this rebellious mankind? But even while we were sinners, He did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him. He did not hold back that good thing, Jesus. He gave Him for us all, died on the cross for our sins. And and the, the natural question is, if He did that when we were sinners... How shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Now that we're saved, now that we've been washed by the blood of Jesus, now that we've been adopted into the family, He will not hold back any good thing. He loves us. He wants to bless us. His promises are true. And uh, He calls us to a life really of love and relationship with Him, built on trust and faith in this goodness of our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. We thank you for the ministry of your word, even in the book of Joshua, Lord, even in the dividing up of the land. We, we see you. We see Jesus. We see application and truth for our own lives. Your word is alive, Lord. It's so good. And Lord, I just pray that tonight our hearts would be encouraged. That each and every person in here tonight, Lord, and some may be struggling Some may even be wrestling under a sense of guilt or unworthiness, condemnation. Some may be going through a very difficult trial. And Lord, it's in those seasons that it's hard to to lift up faith and to believe that that God would, would not hold back any good thing. But Lord, we're reminded of your your greatest gift, the gift of Jesus Christ. You didn't hold him back but rather you delivered him up for us all. And that should encourage our hearts tonight to know that, Lord, if you loved me that much, then I can trust you. You're not holding out. You're not looking to hold back good things. You're looking to bless. You're looking to save. You're looking to forgive. You're looking to rescue and redeem. You're looking to bring us into the fullness of life in the Spirit, of joy and peace and abundance. And I pray that you would encourage hearts tonight with these truths. As our heads are bowed here tonight and we remain in prayer, I also 
want to give an opportunity to respond to the Lord. I do this at the end of each service, always wanting to give an opportunity for the hearts that are here, that might be here, that don't know the Lord yet in a personal way. You maybe never received Jesus as your Savior, but you're hearing it here tonight that God didn't hold him back. He sent him to that cross to die for your sins, for mine. And maybe you've never received that. You know, you've got to come to the refuge, right? Just like that city of refuge. You had to go and take refuge in that place, that provision that God had made. And so tonight, if you've never come to Jesus as your refuge, but God is speaking to your heart and you want to come to faith in Christ, you want to come and receive that forgiveness and that redemption, restoration, and be restored to a life of peace, not only with God, but to a life of peace within your family, within your workplace, within your relationships. God will begin to work in all of that. I'd love to pray for you if you're here tonight and you need to receive Jesus. Maybe you're here tonight and you need to come back to Jesus. I'm thinking here of a heart that has grown cold, a heart that has maybe gotten distracted, trials, difficulties. Maybe sin has entangled you and you begin, you've been living selfishly. You've been out away from God. And God is speaking to your heart and He's inviting you to come back and be restored in relationship. Recommitting, rededicating your life to Him. And I'd love to pray for you tonight as well. So if you're here tonight, you want to receive Jesus for the very first time or you need to rededicate and recommit your life to Him. I would ask you to raise your hand where you're seated. Let me see you. And I'll pray for you. Bless you, sir. Upstairs. Amen. God bless you as well. And you, ma'am, here. God bless you. Anyone else? Okay, there on the end. Yes. Amen. Upstairs as well. God bless you. Just going to pray and invite Jesus into your life and invite him back into your life. God is wanting to bless you. He's not wanting to hold any good thing back. Anyone else, just before we pray, let me see your hand. And so, Lord, for these that have responded tonight, I, I pray that you would meet them with the ministry of your Holy Spirit. That you would touch their heart tonight in such a real and powerful way. That they would know for certain that, that you love them. And Lord, we would simply come as those that responded. We would come to you and we would simply say, Jesus, I'm coming to you to be my refuge. I acknowledge before you that I've, I've fallen short. I've, I've sinned against you, against others. I've made mistakes, I've drifted away, I, I've been living for myself, and I'm, I'm tired of running from you, and I want to run to you. I want to come, and I want you to be my refuge. Jesus, forgive me. Please cleanse me of my sin. Wash me tonight. I'm guilty before you, but I also know that you love me, and that you died for my sin, that I don't have to bear the guilt and shame of it, that you're, you can be my refuge tonight. So I receive that by faith based on your promise and your word. And so God, do cleanse these hearts and then fill them with your spirit that they might be able to live for you with joy and strength and peace, truth. 
And Lord, connect them. Even as we study tonight, may they be woven into the family of God here at this fellowship or wherever you might lead them. A place where your word is taught, a place where your people are sincere, where they can become strong and mature. And Lord, not just receiving from the body, but in time actually becoming a member and a contributor to the body. A blessing within the fellowship. God, meet them in this way. Encourage their hearts tonight. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.